The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. been half-ass in the off-season counting clock, so today we're going to do it. What's the old film joke? Bleep it, we'll do it live. Where are we in the off-season right now? Well, we are exactly three months from the end of the regular season, which ended on uh, May the 16th. And we are, I believe, exactly two months from the start. No, no, no. We're two months and two days. Excuse me. It's October 19th from the start of next season. So no matter how you're doing your countdown or count up clock, we are well past the halfway point of the fantasy offseason. I would argue that we are basically right on the cusp of draft season if we're not already there, which makes this, well... I'd say a lot easier, except we're also into that like very brief lull right before draft stuff picks up at full force. But one thing I can tell you is that, and I count this out on air every single time I forget where we're at. Let's see. May the 16th, this thing ended. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 13 weeks and two additional shows. Show 87. Am I getting that right? I think that's show. I think we're in show 87 of our fantasy offseason. And uh, you've been here through it with us through thick and thin. So with that in mind, welcome to the podcast. I'm Dan Vespers. This is Fantasy NBA Today. Big shout out once again to our buddy Josh Millman on yesterday's show. I love hanging out with Josh. I imagine that probably comes through on the show. And I hope you guys will get the fantasy pass, even though... I believe that the price now has shifted into 2021 iteration of it, the 2021-22 season. I hope a lot of you guys took advantage of the loyalty program and uh, got yourself last year's price. Just leave your stuff on. Make sure everybody that has it is in the Discord, by the way. Which uh, you can get by... Just contacting me. Just hit me up on Twitter or email support at hoop-ball.com. That's another easy way to do it. I'm on Twitter at Dan Bespris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. Hoopball, our uh, home base here for Fantasy NBA Today. Hoopball is hoop-ball.com. That's the website, hoop-ball.com. The Twitter handle is at hoopballfantasy. Go follow them. Go follow me. Anybody that... I mean, we're we're sort of in that moment now, and I, I guess there's a chance that maybe a couple of people... New are listening to the show today that haven't listened to it before after probably not really being the case since the end of the finals last month because I don't really cover the draft. That would have been one spot maybe I could pick up a few new listeners, but you know what? I'm I'm going to stick to what I'm good at, and that's other stuff, not the draft. It's not my it's not my wheelhouse, and William Harris and, and our other guys here at Hoopball have just done a wonderful job uh, covering the young guys and covering Summer League. William's been covering Summer League over on the All Rookie Podcast. Yeah, we got... We got summer league coverage at Hoop Ball. But that's not really our shtick here at Fantasy NBA today, and I'm okay with that fact. 
And seemingly, you guys are okay with that fact as well. That's, uh, I hope, you guys continue to listen to the podcast. What I'd like to talk about today, and I didn't, I'll admit, I came into this week not really having a a true plan for what we were going to do on a day-to-day basis. There was a thought that maybe we could go back and kind of rehash the teams that we just broke down day by day in sort of a chunk by chunk basis instead, meaning, okay, well, what happened during free agency that adjusts our numbers on different divisions, but I, I know how I am. I know how I operate, especially when I'm doing solo, pod, solo pods, and that's, I get sidetracked. We'll get into these deep dives and end up rehashing a lot of the stuff we did over the last month. So then I thought, is this the right time to start working on our buckets? Because I think I had mentioned that was probably in the cards here real soon on the Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday show of last week, which is to say, hey, look, now that we've done all this handicapping, we've handicapped all the teams, we handicapped free agency, it's time to put this stuff down on paper and begin to look at how all the buckets situate themselves. And that's going to be coming up here really soon. But all that gets put on hold when something actually happens in the NBA that might have fantasy implications. And we had not one, but two trades over the last 24 hours. And as we joked about on yesterday's show, Josh Hart is back in New Orleans with the Pelicans, which, by the way, is not completely inconsequential. We kind of laughed about it on yesterday's podcast because it doesn't really change the Pelicans' fortunes all that much. And Josh Hart is one of those guys that constantly plays himself into an injury. But when you consider the fact that... uh, J.J. Redick was shipped out last year. Eric Bledsoe was shipped out, and he moved again, by the way, which is one of the things we're going to be talking about on today's podcast. But Bledsoe moved out. Lonzo got traded. And yeah, they brought in Tomas Sadoransky and signed Garrett Temple to a contract. But Hart's kind of is, I would likely argue, in front of those guys in the pecking order. In fact, he may very well be the starting shooting guard on this Pelicans team coming into next season. So for today's show, by the way, shout out Joel Embiid getting a $200 million contract as well. But on today's show, we're going to be talking about Josh Hart, and we're going to be talking about the back-to-back Patrick Beverly trades that happened yesterday afternoon and today this morning on Fantasy NBA Today. That's the plan for the day. We'll see how far that takes us. And I think tomorrow, barring other large-scale news, we'll probably start to talk draft strategy and maybe even get into the buckets a little bit. But it's going to be, the bucket thing is going to be complicated. It's going to take some time. And I haven't fully worked out in my head the most logical way to actually pour through those things. Because if we do it bucket by bucket, you end up basically just making your list live in real time. And if you do it by team by team, you can get lost in the details a little bit. And then you sort of forget who's in which bucket listeners will not have the the advantage of me and my handwritten or notepad TXT file lists floating around on the computer screen in front of them. 
So it'll be really easy to forget and lose track of who's in each bucket. So I got to figure out the right, most organized way to actually present that stuff. It'll be a relatively new thing for us this offseason on the podcast. It's not something we've done in the past, but I think it's it's probably going to be helpful. More so for you guys than me, because I'm going to have the buckets regardless. But uh, we'll do kind of a nine-cat roto bucket, and I'll try my best as we're working through that stuff here coming over the next week or two, I would imagine, starting soon to outline where certain guys might shift in or out of particular buckets, and then you guys will have to make those adjustments on your own papers at home. I'm not going to do buckets for points league 8-cat and 9-cat. I'm going to do my 9-cat roto buckets, and then you guys can make your adjustments from there. But today, again, we've got a couple of trades to go uh, to pour over. We've got the Josh Hart re-signing to go over, and uh, we'll put a pin in things after we get through that stuff. I will remind all of you guys... That as we dive into our fantasy stuff, anybody that does not have a mybookie.ag account, this is the perfect time to do it because they're running an odds boost promo for the start of the NFL season coming up in just about three and a half weeks. Odds boost, for those uninitiated, is when mybookie puts out a bet that's basically just free money. It's not a promotional wager. It's a real one. They say there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, this is a free, actually pretty decent lunch. This is a $25 guaranteed winner. Not all of the odds boost bets are guaranteed winners. Some of them take things that would normally be like, uh, you know, a minus 300 favorite and make them even money, stuff like that. Things that shift the odds a long way in the user's favor. The NFL odds boost they're running this year is a guaranteed win. It is if either team scores in the NFL's kickoff game on Thursday, what is that, September 9th? Am I getting the date right on that? Yeah. If anybody scores, either team in any capacity, you win. It's a yes or no bet that would normally be like a minus probably eight, 9,000 odds, and it's even money. Pretty much. Minus 110. So you still got to pay the VIG for some reason. $25 is the max bet because they don't want everybody taking them out of house and home. But go get an account at mybookie.ag. Make your first deposit of whatever. If you have Bitcoin, you can actually make a $25 deposit. Make that bet. Win that bet. And if you want to take your $47 back out, because that's basically what you'll have after you win a $25 bet and pay the juice, go be my guest. But don't leave $25 on the table when they are literally giving it to you. Dan, don't I have three and change weeks to decide if I want to do this? Yeah, I guess. But what the hell? Why wait? I placed my odds boost bet last week when my buddy Devin Ellington t- uh, reminded me that it was happening. I went, oh, crap. Yeah, forgot to check in on that. Great. Logged in, placed my bet, took me all of 45 seconds, and now I don't have to think about it again until September 9th. In the evening when I'm like, sweet, there's an extra 22 and change dollars in my MyBookie account. Delightful. The website, again, is MyBookie.ag. If you're going to sign up, please make sure to use promo code HOOPBALL on the third page of sign up so they know who sent you. That's a really big deal. Go get your $25, and I'm going to remind you of this constantly over the next 23 days. I want every listener of this show to get $25 for doing nothing. You don't have to do anything other than make an account put a little money in it, bet it, win it, take the money out. I don't care. It doesn't mean any difference to me if you keep your money in their account. They probably assume you'll continue to bet. 
Mess with them. I don't care. Take the money out. Go buy yourself something with the $22 winnings. Get a fantasy pass for most of the season. Spend it on hoop ball. <laughs> All right. So let's talk Josh Hart for a minute because he actually does have stretches where he borders on fantasy value. For the entire season, this most recently completed campaign, he played 47 out of the Pels' 72 ball games, which, by the way, is a constant issue with Hart's reality game. But, of course, that does translate to the fantasy side as well. He's not a healthy dude. Maybe that's not the fair way to assess it. He's not a uh, uninjured dude. Lakers, first year, missed 19 games. Second year, missed 15 games. Uh, last year, believe it or not, he played 65 out of 72 games with New Orleans. That was a pretty large surprise. This year, missed 25 games. Youch. Played exclusively almost off the bench. About 5% of his games. Eh, that's not right. About uh, 7 or 8% of his games, he was a starter. Shot 44%, made 1.33 pointers, had 8 rebounds a game as a shooting guard, which is kind of remarkable. 0.8 steals, 9 points, 2 assists. My hope is that by bringing him back with the Pels giving Hart this new contract and basically saying, look, yeah, we we like you. We want you to be a part of what we're doing here. You know, it didn't surprise me the way that the Marcus, or it surprised me, I should say, more that the Pels gave Josh Hart this three-year, $38 million deal. I know Marcus Smart also signed an extension, but he always was sort of, he was the Celtics. He was the, he's been their heartbeat. So it would have really surprised me if he wasn't back with Boston in a way that, with Hart, felt like he could have ended up almost any place. But I think with New Orleans, they're like, look, we, like, we can go into the indicator over the cap to re-sign our guy, so we might as well do it. Hart was only making $3.5 million last year. I believe that was the last season of his rookie contract, so it's a good opportunity for him to make a little bit of coin. His return, and it remains to be seen exactly what New Orleans plans on doing with guys like Jarrett Temple and Tomas Sadoransky, but to me, it does feel like Josh Hart almost has to be the starting shooting guard now. I don't know if Sato is going to be the starting point guard uh, or if that's going to be Nikhil Alexander-Walker because they don't really need a traditional pass point guard. They'll run their offense through Zion and Brandon Ingram. So uh, Ingram at the three, Zion at the four, Jonas Valanciunas is the five, the question marks for this team are the point guard and shooting guard spots. We don't know exactly what they're going to be doing. My best guess right now, Alexander Walker point Josh Hart at shooting guard. So let's assume, for argument's sake, that Hart now actually sees his minutes increase again to potentially a career high this coming season. Could he do enough to clear that fantasy threshold? I believe the answer remains, unfortunately, no. Because one of the big, big reasons why Hart was able to hit top 140 this year in fantasy is because of his eight rebounds. And a big, big reason why he was able to get to those eight rebounds is because the Pels ran smaller lineups and he was out there snatching boards. It was basically like Zion, who, by the way, 
is not as great a rebounder as someone of his size and strength it seems like they should be. He only averaged seven a game last year in 33 minutes a night. That's less than Josh Hart. Steven Adams was the guy who was supposed to be the rebounder on that team last year, but he's so offensively challenged, he couldn't stay on the floor for more than 26, 27 minutes a game, and that got him to nine rebounds a night. So nobody on the Pels averaged double-digit rebounds. I think that's probably going to change this year. Jonas Valanciunas is a terrific rebounder. He's a monster. He averaged 12 and a half boards a game in Memphis last year. Admittedly, the guys around him in Memphis were also not particularly strong rebounders. He's going to a team where I would argue the Josh Hart, Zion, Brandon Ingram combination is probably a better rebounding combo than slow-mo Dylan Brooks, John Morant, or whatever the hell the Grizzlies had around JV in Memphis. But at the same time, JV's a better rebounder than Steven Adams was. So that's probably going to take boards away from the other guys around him. One of them would be Josh Hart. And the other thing with Hart is the reason he's hurt all the time is because he plays this hard as a guard. It's Pat Beverlitis. We've talked about this before, who, again, we'll be talking about him quite a bit in just a minute. Pat Beverlitis is a syndrome that I describe vaguely as a guard that thinks he's a big. It thinks it's a center, which is like an old silly joke. The, the, the ramifications of that are Patrick Beverly, guys like Patrick Beverly, Josh Hart. These guys end up as guards with crazy high rebound totals in a place where you wouldn't expect to have them, but simultaneously they end up banged up and hurt because they're just simply not as big as the dudes they're in there smashing around with. Josh Hart is 6'5", 215. He might be able to go get a bunch of extra rebounds, but he's going to have to blast into 7-foot, 315-pound guys to get them. That results in he's got to jump higher than those guys. He has to box out those guys. He has to try to push them out of the way. That is a big Big injury risk. So Josh Hart in a head-to-head is right off the table. There's almost no chance I would consider drafting him in head-to-head when you think about a guy who doesn't really have a ton of upside. And whatever upside there might be with him possibly moving into the starting lineup, maybe seeing an extra shot or two per game, let's say he does actually keep his rebounds relatively high despite the acquisition of Jonas Valanciunas. Uh... How how much fantasy value could he ever really get? How could how could we squeeze out of this dude? How many more shots do we actually think he might get to? He took 7.3 shots per game last year. Do you think we can get to nine? If he took nine shots per game, he probably would be right on the edge of the top 100. And that's assuming, again, his rebounds don't decrease, which they probably will unless his minutes go up by like three And I don't know that I see that happening, especially not with the injury stuff. So uh, as much as I like the fact that you can get out of position stats from Josh Hart, he profiles much, much better as a second half of the season stat hunting ROI kind of play. Those of you that have listened to this podcast for many years, you you know what that means. But just very quickly for those who maybe are newer 
or missed some of the discussions on that this most recent season. When you go stat hunting your return on investment, basically what you've done there is you've averaged out your roto stats to find out, hey, if I change nothing, do I catch people in front of me, get passed by people behind me? Basically, as the games played level off, as everybody approaches the same number of games played at the end of the year, how am I going to look in X category? It's, it seems like it'd be really easy to figure out, but when there's 11 other teams on the board and you're looking at all of them and you're trying to figure out who actually ends up where and all 12 teams have played a different number of games and all 12 teams have a different number of total rebounds happening at any one moment, it's actually not that easy to just eyeball it. I strongly recommend building an Excel spreadsheet that takes averages of each of those categories. And then you're like, okay, look, if no one makes any changes, which of course doesn't happen in a vacuum, the way we create these science experiments, in a vacuum, do I need to increase my number of rebounds per game cap game to pass people? And Josh Hart is just that kind of guy because the best way to increase your average in a particular statistical category, is to remove the low outliers in said category. And for rebounds, and this is why I'm trying to apply it to Josh Hart, if you pull, like if you have someone that you're starting regularly on your team that's only averaging like two and a half to three rebounds per game, they might be ranked much, much higher than Josh Hart. Like, take Evan Fournier this last year, when he was healthy. Or even Marcus Smart, who we're going to talk about in a minute. No, we're not. He re-signed with the same team. I lied. We're not going to talk about Marcus Smart. Uh, talk about, let's, let's take Smart as an example here. He was number 92 this year, 40-plus slots higher than Josh Hart, but averaged only three and a half rebounds per game. If you found yourself in pretty good shape in steals and assists, where Smart was a bit better this year, you could very easily... Take Smart out of your lineup, put Josh Hart in, and suddenly you've now shifted your shooting guard slot from a dude getting three and a half rebounds a game to eight rebounds per game. That's a colossal shift to remove the guy who's a negative on a category and turn it into a guy who's a positive. Even though every other category not every other category, but almost every other category, you actually end up losing out a tiny bit. You, it, there's, that's why it's ROI. Which of these is actually going to make the biggest difference for me? It's not playing a center who gets 10 rebounds against a different center who gets 9 rebounds. It is also utilizing your utility slot for someone who's good at that category that you're hunting. But again, the easiest way to boost a category is to take a guy out who's bad at it and put a guy in who's good at it. And if you have positional requirements in your fantasy league, taking out a shooting guard and replacing him with another shooting guard who's four-plus rebounds better per game, that's a big deal. But all that to say, he's not worth drafting. He's not going to be worth drafting because that you don't want to play a top 140 guy for the... I don't know how many games he's going to play this year, the 66 games he's going to play this season. That's not useful. What you want is to plop him in there for two or three games 
in your like head-to-head playoffs or if you're coming down the shoot in Roto and you need 24 rebounds real quick out of a guard slot, that is where a guy like Josh Hart becomes useful. So I... I said we were going to talk about the upcoming Patrick Beverly whirlwind, and we are, um, but a lot of the guys in this trade, or these trades, I guess we should say, are not really worth deep diving. Yesterday, the Grizzlies traded Eric Bledsoe, who they had just picked up from the Pelicans. The Grizzlies traded Eric Bledsoe to the Clippers. Life comes full circle. It's like a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode. And the Grizzlies received... Patrick Beverly, Rajan Rondo, and Daniel Oturu, uh, and I believe some various draft compensation as well. This morning, the Grizzlies then flipped Patrick Beverly to the Minnesota Timberwolves and got Jarrett Culver and Juancho Hernan Gomez back from Minnesota. It's weird to look at two trades and feel like every team kind of got what they were looking for. But that's basically what went down here. The Grizzlies are still trying to stockpile young, decent basketball players that they're hoping can amount to something more. So their goal in this was to wind up with Jarrett Culver, to wind up with Daniel Oturu, and they got those guys. Their goal was never to wind up with Patrick Beverly or Rajon Rondo, or frankly, even Juancho Hernan Gomez, who's been overrated pretty much since the moment he set foot in the NBA, especially from a fantasy perspective. But those guys were sort of a means to an end, and then one of them has already been shipped out. Rajon Rondo, I'm sure, will be basically right behind. Or if they keep him, who knows? Maybe he serves as a a John Morant mentor, which seems completely insane to say out loud. And yeah, no. Yeah, no. From a reality standpoint, I actually really like the Wolves getting Patrick Beverly. I know it thinks that they have to give up on Jarrett Culver this quickly. He actually looked like he could become something interesting during parts, not so much of this season, but of last year, the uh, March shutdown season. Losing Juancho Hernan Gomez is, is nothing. But getting Patrick Beverly to come in there and just install a measure of toughness on a team that has noticeably lacked it Remember all the crap that went on in Minnesota when Jimmy Butler was there? It was pretty much all about toughness. And I get it. Jimmy Butler's going to rub a lot of dudes the wrong way. Not everybody responds to his brand of leadership the same way. And clearly the guys in Minnesota didn't. Why do I think Patrick Beverly will work out differently? I think the Wolves got a little bit of a taste of humble pie. Because when Butler left, they went from being a slightly over 500 team to just a total train wreck. And yes, Carl Anthony Towns missed a bunch of time with injury each of the last two seasons. That undoubtedly played a big role, but they weren't very good even when he was back. Until the very end of this season, they started to look like a half-decent, and I mean that quite literally. They were a half-decent basketball team with Cat, D'Lo, both healthy, and Anthony Edwards kind of surging towards the end of the year. What that team lacked was any kind of defensive identity. 
So now they bring in the guy. Like, things were sort of out of order on the Jimmy Butler front. Jimmy Butler was brought in when the team didn't yet realize that they needed that type of fire. They hadn't seen the other side of it yet. It was Zach Levine. He got traded out, remember? It was young guys. It was Zach Levine young. Cat was still young. They were just having fun, scoring a bunch, being hyper-athletic. Butler came in and tried to turn them into a winning team in his own very special way of doing so, and they were a lot better when he was there. Then he left, and they realized, look, like we need this type of presence, just not that guy. So they get Patrick Beverly, who I'm sure is going to piss everybody off, but he's going to get guys to play hard. And I think Minnesota feels some pressure this year to win some ball games. That's a team where I, I personally, I think I would probably target Wolves in the upcoming draft because they profile to me as a team that wants to fight for the play-in tournament. It's weird to say that out loud, but they've been so bad now for so long that but it's not like an eternity. Some teams have been bad longer but they've been bad long enough to where some success, the buildup, is actually quite reasonable. In terms of fantasy value, he will have none. Patrick Beverly is not going to play enough, nor is he going to see enough shots on that team to pile up fantasy value. D'Angelo Russell, Anthony Edwards, Carl uh, Anthony Towns, like the... The pecking order is quite clear, and it's well in front of uh, of Patrick Beverly. However, I would add the caveat that in a Roto Games Cap format, he, like Josh Hart, has the ability to do that out-of-position category thing. They could play him as a two-guard if they wanted to. They could just play him as a backup point guard behind D'Angelo Russell, but to me, you could easily pair those guys up. It's not like D'Lo and Ricky Rubio where they both needed to be initiating the offense. Patty Reveley doesn't need to initiate the offense. In fact, he's quite uncomfortable doing so. He would rather camp in the corner and hit an open three ball and then just play dogged defense on the other side. So they could start him. That would push Malik Beasley up to the small forward spot. Anthony Edwards would now would be a uh, wildly undersized power forward and then Cat at, at the five. I don't know about that lineup. It feels too small. But the modern NBA is something special, so who the hell knows? I do think he'll play 25 minutes a game. I don't think that's enough for sustained fantasy value. I don't see the need to draft him because no one's going to be fighting you for him. But if he somehow comes out and plays 29 minutes in their first game, then you pick him up because then you're going to get threes, rebounds, and defensive stats until he hurts himself which he inevitably will. Rajon Rondo, not going to play very much in Memphis. You can cast him aside. Jarrett Culver is going to be fighting for developmental minutes in Memphis, but he's someone that I think they like going forward. Juancho Hernan Gomez, I don't think he's playing much at all in Memphis either because, again, he's not very good, and his fantasy game sucks. Fantasy game sucks. Points and rebounds, and that is all he does. The only name besides Beverly who has an actual path to fantasy value that got moved in this trade was Eric freaking Bledsoe. And oof, was he bad this year. Oh, was he so bad with the Pels this season. And they gave him opportunity. 
It wasn't like the Pels refused to play the dude. He logged 30 minutes a game this year, which was more than his previous season in Milwaukee by almost three minutes a night. And yet, his number of shots went down by one and a half, roughly, from his final season with the Bucks. His free throw percentage was more or less a career worst. Some sort of mental block going on at the free throw line. He shot 69% there. His rebounds were under his career mark. His assists were under his career mark. His steals were way under his career mark, which, by the way, is saying something when you're playing in New Orleans where everybody's just gambling and trying to collect steals. His blocks were under his career per 36 mark. I mean, everything he did this year screamed one of two things. It screamed either I'm getting old or it screamed I don't care. I believe it's probably a combination of those two things because even two years prior in Milwaukee, he averaged 1.5 steals per game. Three years earlier, he was at two steals per game in Milwaukee. That was uh, after his I don't want to be here in Phoenix situation. So this is a guy who's always been a really high steals per game guy. And basically, he's been a dude who's at like 1.7 steals per 36. And this year, he was at like 0.9 or 1 steals per 36. That is a steep, steep drop-off. Does he just suck at getting steals now? I don't I don't think that's true. He also played 71 out of their 72 ball games, so he showed a measure of durability in all of this crap. But it just seemed like he was a terrible fit in New Orleans, a place that didn't want him. He kind of knew they didn't want him. He didn't gel with the other guys on the team. He was the veteran who thought he was better than he was and at the same time was one of the only guys on the team who actually has any history of playing defense, even if that, for him, has actually tapered off a little bit in the, the later stages here. Because he's been in the NBA for a decade now. But the Clippers clearly see something. Because if they would send out Patrick Beverly, who's kind of their fire guy, and I don't care about Rajon Rondo. Remember when the Clippers made a big deal about picking up Rondo halfway through last season? fart sound effect if they're willing to send out Patrick Beverly who I think has been one of the most important clippers on a team of non-vocal leaders then they must feel pretty good about what they're getting back with Eric Bledsoe who might very well start for this clippers team it really comes down to what they're going to be doing with Reggie Jackson, who was just incredible for them in the playoffs last year. And with no Kawhi Leonard, the Clippers are going to be hunting. This is going to be a ton of responsibility for Paul George because there's talent on that Clippers team, but damn, they were they were pretty top-heavy. Nick Batum re-signing with the Clippers. I feel like a lot of what's happening in L.A. is a bunch of guys that are like, sweet, I'm going to have a whole bunch of usage this year. This is going to be a fun year. We're going to make the playoffs, and I'm going to get to do a lot. I'm not on the sidelines. This is a way for me to, to make another name for myself. So guys like Reggie Jackson, Nick Batum, these guys are going to get opportunity on this Clippers team. And I'm inclined to believe 
that if I had to guess on the Clippers' opening day starting five, and I don't know what Serge Ibaka's health is going to be like, I'm going to assume that he's basically hurt, that it will be Reggie Jackson at point, Eric Bledsoe at the two-guard spot, Paul George, the small forward, Marcus Morris, the power forward, and Ivica Zubats, the center. There is an outside chance that Terrence Mann slides in and that would move Bledsoe back to the bench. There is also the chance that Batum starts, and that may be the more likely of them, with Marcus Morris and Ivica Zubats, and that would push Bledsoe, I think, to the bench. Or does it push Reggie Jackson to the bench so that they have bench firepower? The more important way to break this thing down is to look at guard depth on the Clippers. And there's not a ton of it because they sent out two guards and only got one back in this trade. They sent out Rondo and Pat Beverly, two guys that were probably going to combine to play about 40 minutes of ballgame, and they got back someone who's not going to play 40 minutes of ballgame. The guard depth on the Clippers is effectively Reggie Jackson, Eric Bledsoe, dot, 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 Luke Kennard. Guess he's technically a shooting guard. Terrence Mann, although probably more of a small forward than a shooting guard, but I guess you could slot him in there as well. I'll say this. If Jackson is a starting point guard, Bledsoe's playing every backup point guard minute unless one of them is hurt, and then Yogi Ferrell might get a couple. If Bledsoe's the starting point guard, then Reggie Jackson's playing every backup point guard minute. But I like to think of it more of it as two roster slots, two starting slots, two positional spots, point guard and shooting guard. How do those 96 minutes get divvied up? If Paul George is the starting shooting guard, then he's going to get some 35 minutes on the floor where... Probably 24 of those are at shooting guard and another 12 at small forward when he slides up when, say, Batum is off the floor or Marcus Morris is off the floor and everybody moves up a spot. Or if Zubats is off the floor and everybody moves up a slot. Regardless, not every minute that Paul George plays this year, he's going to play. He's going to log huge minutes per game, probably 34 or more. Uh, but not every one of those is going to be at shooting guard. So let's say that leaves about 24 other shooting guard minutes. And at point guard... If you say Reggie Jackson's the starter and he plays 31, 32 minutes a game, that's going to leave another 16 or so minutes there. So we're still talking about 40. That was, I think, a relatively liberal estimate also of how much those two guys are going to play at those positions on the floor. Also, I, by the way, I just gave Reggie Jackson every minute he plays was at the point guard spot. That's not necessarily going to be the case because he may play alongside Eric Bledsoe for a stretch or two as well. The point I'm trying to make with this needlessly convoluted explanation is that of those 96 minutes, if you very simply give 65 of them to Paul George and Reggie Jackson, you're still talking about 30-plus minutes in the backcourt up for grabs. And Bledsoe's probably ahead of Luke Kennard in the pecking order, despite the fact the Clippers gave Kennard way too much money last offseason. He's farther down the board. Would I draft Eric Bledsoe is really what this comes down to. I don't think you guys care what I think 
his final season marks are. I believe he's going to play a fairly durable season because the Clippers are going to need him to. So put him in the 70s in games played, mid-70s, maybe even high 70s if you get lucky. On a per-game basis, so by the way, for head-to-head, if you can get a a durable player on the Clippers, then you're really in money because Paul George is not super durable anymore. Um, Reggie Jackson is relatively durable, so I think he's going to be a pretty good head-to-head selection. And I think Bledsoe actually might be a decent head-to-head selection as well. I don't think that his per-game upside is ever going to be back where it used to be. However, his 10.3 shots per game in New Orleans this year, I, I, I can't imagine that goes any lower. So if we just assume, even for a moment, that this is someone who maybe can kick it back up to four and a half assists per game and is excited enough to get back to like 1.2 steals per game, 1.1, 1.2. Maybe does the scoring tick up ever so slightly? Does he get back up to like 11 shots per night? Maybe. Then are we talking about someone who's at like 14, three and a half, four and a half, and one in change steals and almost two three-pointers a game? Yeah, that's a guy who's inside the top 100. Barely, but it's in there. So give me like the number 95 player durable in head-to-head and you're cooking. In Roto, the lack of meaningful upside means he's not someone I'm really targeting in front of the top 130 because there's just no way he's going to be better than like top 90. That's To me, that's a perfect season for Bledsoe is top 90 this year. He doesn't get back to the guy who took 13, 14 shots a game and orchestrates the offense to five and a half to six assists a night, or has the legs underneath him to get two steals per game. He's not that guy anymore. That is the upside if you were trying to hunt it down. He's just, that's not him. It's not in the tank anymore. So a little bit more interesting to me in head-to-head because of the durability element, because he could just cruise along in that 100 range all season long, and that makes him a really good grab in the 100 to 140 draft zone. Because if he is durable, he'll blow that ADP out of the water by totals. Maybe more interestingly on this Clippers team, someone like a Nick Batum, he was fantastic when Kawhi or Paul George missed time last year. Remember how good Batum was before he got COVID and before the Clippers got healthy? Look at his game log from early this most recent season, look at like December and January when he was going for those super well-rounded Batumi lines, two to three three-pointers a game, good percentages, a steal, a block, five rebounds, three and some odd assists. He fell off as the season progressed, but he was way better than that for the first three-ish months of the year. I mean, he finished at number 108, but... If you look at the if you pull it up by date range, like go opening day this last season through basically the trade deadline, which was kind of like the first two and a half months of the year, Batum was top 70 on averages of nine, five, and two, 1.7 defensive stats, two three-pointers and good percentages, and almost no turnovers. Um that's mostly with Kawhi, Paul George healthy, and Marcus Morris was heavily the guy who was coming back from injury at that point. 
And yeah, admittedly, Kawhi and, and PG missed a handful of games in there, but it was really Marcus Morris's health that pushed Batum out to the periphery. Picture all that, but instead of removing a guy who took 10-11 shots a game, remove a guy who took 19 in Kawhi during those first two and a half months of the season. Batum's going to be forced to take eight shots a game. He's not going to like it, but he's going to have to do it. So Nick Batum, really interesting. I would say both head-to-head and Roto, because he's relatively durable. And I think he's going to have a pretty well-rounded line. Obviously Paul George, but that's not who we're talking about right now. Uh, Ivica Zubats should be pretty interesting this year. I mean, he was... Like, he wasn't great this season. Clippers fans are nuts, man. I Like, Ivica Zubats is fine, but he's not this star that Clippers Twitter really wants me to believe he is. He's fine. There's nothing wrong with being fine. But even when he's playing... like. In my mind, we were always waiting for the day that Zubats was going to get 25 uncontested minutes. But it turns out that he's a plateauer. When he gets more than 21, 22 minutes, his production doesn't really go up any further because his motor runs out. So I don't think he's worth exploring. I don't think Marcus Morris is worth exploring in eight cat leagues. He's definitely not on the sh- on the market Nine cat and points leagues, Marcus Morris is probably going to be teetering right on the edge of value because he's going to get those shots. He's another guy where you have to look at the at the calendar and you have to like find the games when PG or Kawhi was out and say, oh, well, how did Marcus Morris do in those games? Well, he got 12, 13 shots instead of 10. That was a really big deal for his value because it's all tied up in scoring and three-pointers. Good good percentages for Marcus Morris scoring in threes. That means that every shot he takes is a power boost, a magic mushroom to his fantasy value. His, his fantasy value is like 98% tied up in whether or not he's going to get an extra shot per game. And with no Kawhi, he'll get one. But there's a little bit of a specialist thing going on there. If I'm going to look at all the Clippers now, besides Paul George, who of course is going to get drafted extraordinarily early this year with no Kawhi Leonard. If you're looking at the other guys, which to me, the other guys you need to even consider on the Clippers, and we'll wait on Serge Ibaka's health, but I'm leaning towards just not even venturing down that path. The other guys are Nick Batum, Marcus Morris, Reggie Jackson, Eric Bledsoe, and Ivica Zubats. It's five guys. Sorry, Terrence Mann, you didn't make my, my final cut here. Those five guys. Batum, Marcus Morris, Reggie Jackson, Eric Bledsoe, Ivica Zubats. If I'm looking at those five guys in the wake of this last Clippers trade, and who knows, maybe something else happens between now and opening day, Batum makes the most sense as the guy you draft at like 115, who almost definitely won't hurt you might be useful in head-to-head all season long. Might even be useful in Roto games cap all season long if he can put up that top 80 type of number. But even if he's not, you know that if ever anyone else on the Clippers is hurt, if Reggie Jackson has to miss a game, if Marcus Morris has to miss a game, if Ivica Zubats has to miss a game, then it's an easy call. Because I think in the worst case scenario, Batum is one player away from being a really good fantasy player, and he might actually be a decent one anyway. 
Next most interesting guy in that group is probably Reggie Jackson. And that's based almost exclusively on me believing that he hit a confidence and comfort zone in the playoffs this year that's basically like carte blanche for him to go and take a crap ton of shots this coming year. Makes much more sense in points leagues because his field goal percent is garbage and he doesn't get any defensive stats. Um, Much better in points leagues than category leagues, and I'll kind of leave it at that. I think he should actually be pretty good in points leagues this year. Marcus Morris is the next guy on my chart of interesting on this Clippers team because I do think that he's going to be more willing to take shots with no Kawhi Leonard. Again, if you get him to a dozen shots per game, he's inside the top 100. I would put Eric Bledsoe as kind of fourth on that interesting totem pole because we kind of know where he caps out and we don't really know his role yet. And then Zubats, he's last on my totem pole because we know his gig. He's top 200. He'll have a top, he'll have a week where he's inside the top 120, and then he'll have a week where he's like top 250. But there's just no upside there at all. At least the other guys, you could make an argument that there's some weird narrow path to a meaningful fantasy season and not just a decent one. And that's where we'll leave things today. I went a lot farther than I thought I would. thought this was going to be like a 25-minute show and we're at 40-something. Oops, I talk too much. I'm aware of that. Tomorrow, um, give me a day here. I'll try to figure out how I want to go through this buckets, but it's time to start doing it. Bucket time here on Fantasy NBA Today. I'm Dan Vespers. Have a wonderful day, everybody. We will talk to you tomorrow. So long. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.